Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast with Australian writer Helen Garner, recorded live at our May 2015 event. Helen Garner is one of Australia's leading public intellectuals and is the author of non-fiction, novels, short stories, essays and feature journalism. She speaks with Mary Peters about her life's writing, including her preoccupation with justice in the last two of her books published, including This House of Grief. We hope you enjoy this session. (laughs) Helen Garner is a novelist, short story writer and journalist. You name it, Helen Garner can write it. Her first novel, Monkey Grip, was published in 1977, and she's written many works of fiction and non-fiction since. I started on what became an overly long list of the many awards that Helen has won, and I decided that we would be here all day if I went through that. So I thought you'd take the word of a judge that she's won many and just (laughs) leave it at that. If that weren't enough, she's written many screenplays her one, her, her, the, the one for two friends was made into a film directed by our very own national treasure, Jane Campion. In an interview in 1999, Helen said, my initial reason for writing is that I need to shape things so I can make them bearable or comprehensible to myself. It's my way of making sense of things. This House of Grief is a bearable book about a court case that took place in 2007 and it captured the attention of the public both in Victoria where it took place but beyond. Helen attended the trial day in, day out and this book is the result. Some of you might have heard Kim Hill interview Helen towards the end of last year. I was listening to that and I thought... This book sounds like my kind of book, and so it proved. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. Thanks very much. Helen, you were going to introduce the story and give everyone a snapshot with with a short reading from the book. Would you like to do that? Yes, I'll do that. I'll just read the first, it's about the first page and a half of this book, This House of Grief. Uh, It lays out the story and... I guess also my attitude to the story when I first heard about it. Once there was a hard-working bloke who lived in a small Victorian country town with his wife and their three young sons. They battled along on his cleaner's wage, slowly building themselves a bigger house. One day, out of the blue, his wife told him that she was no longer in love with him. She did not want to go on with the marriage. She asked him to move out. The kids would live with her, she said, and he could see them whenever he liked. She urged him to take anything he wanted from the house. The only thing she asked for, and got, was the newer of their two cars. The sad husband picked up his pillow and went to live with his widowed father several streets away. Before long, his wife was seen keeping company with the concrete they had hired to pour the slab for the new house. The tradesman was a born-again Christian, with several kids and his own broken marriage. Soon the separated wife began to accompany him to his church. Next, 
the husband spotted the concreter driving around town in the car that he had slaved to buy. Up to this point, you could tell the story is a country and western song, a rueful tale of love betrayed, a little bit whiny, a little bit sweet. But ten months later, <coughs> just after dark, <coughs> just after dark on a September evening in 2005, while the discarded husband was driving his sons back to their mother from a Father's Day outing, his old white Commodore swerved off the highway, barely five minutes from home, and plunged into a dam. He freed himself from the car and swam to the bank. The car sank to the bottom, and all the children drowned. I saw it on the TV news. Night, low foliage, water, misty and black, blurred lights, a chopper, men in high-vis and helmets. Something very bad here, something frightful. Oh, Lord, let this be an accident. The discarded husband in the story was a chap called Robert Farquharson and his three little boys were called Jai, Jai, Ty, it's Jay, Jay, it's it's Jay, Tyler and Bailey. Helen, could you start by just giving us an overview of the main thrust or planks of the Crown case yeah. and Farquharson's case? Yeah, um, Farquharson, um, he, he scrambled out of the water and went to the roadside and hitched a flag down a car and persuaded the people driving the car, two young blokes from the town, to drive him to his ex-wife's house because he wanted to tell her that he'd killed the kids. He, um, his only defence really was that he, um, he'd had a coughing fit at the wheel and blacked out and when he came to, he was in the water up to here. He made this gesture. I was in water up to here. And uh, the coughing fit was his uh, was the main, well, the only plank, if you want to call it that, of, of his defence. The Crown case was that he had actually steered the car off the road um, and gone to the dam on purpose. That's basically the gist of it. Do you need more detail than that? What, and got himself out and left the Got himself out and... Uh, and uh, swam to the bank. It was a very, I should say, there was, when they called it a dam, it was actually more like a kind of pit. It was not very far, only, um, I can't remember how many metres off the road. It was a country road. Uh, but the, it was um, not, not a, a farm dam with battered sides, but it was the, a hole that was left over by, I should say, this, this dam was at the foot of, a, of an overpass. The road goes, it's a, it's a flat volcanic landscape. And the car went up this overpass under which the train line ran and down the other side. And the dam was on the right-hand side of the road. So to get into the dam, he had to steer across the oncoming traffic, except there wasn't any, but across and into the dam like that. But uh, we keep calling it a dam, but as I said, it was a pit left over um, the dirt, they dug out the dirt to make the overpass and the, the, the water-filled hole was um, seven metres deep and it just went straight down. If it, had been a, if it had been a farm dam, it would have had sloping sides and it would be a different story, I think. It just sort of plummets to the bottom, does it? Yeah, the car went down nose first, obviously, as cars do. And, um, yeah, that was it. Who, who were some of the main characters that were witnesses that gave evidence? Um, 
uh, the Crown witnesses, you mean? Well, yeah, and on both sides. I mean, yeah. for instance, the, the ex-wife. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, yes, well, this is why I got interested... Well, one of the reasons why I got interested in the story in the first place was that his wife, his former wife, whose name was Cindy, she changed her name back to her maiden name when she went off with a concreter, uh, and her name was Cindy Gambino. Uh, and she, at first, flatly refused to believe that he had done it on purpose... Um, and she gave evidence at the committal hearing, which I went to. And, uh, I mean, she was a person whose the very colour of her skin seemed to be darkened by grief and suffering. But she staunchly said, I don't believe this was an accident. He wouldn't have hurt a hair on their heads. She kept using that expression. Um, uh, and she gave evidence f for the, you know, when she was examined by, by the prosecution, she spoke quite passionately of how much he loved his children and how she refused to believe that, that this was anything but an accident. But uh, there was a very important witness who was a great friend of Robert Farquharson, whose name was Greg King, and he, he gave evidence to the effect that uh, outside that was called something called the fish and chips shop conversation happened in this little town Winchelsea where they lived as a population of about a thousand people um, and about uh, almost a year after the the marriage breakup uh, Greg King was outside the fish and chip shop waiting for his kids to come out with the chips and uh, Farquharson was also there and uh, Cindy Gambino just happened to walk past the two men and um, Farquharson would, didn't greet her. She greeted them, but, but, but Farquharson wouldn't greet his ex-wife. And Greg King, the friend, said, oh, come on, Robbie, you've got to get past this, you know, move on. You've got to, you've got to say hello to her at least. And Greg King said that Farquharson, in response to this urging, um, poured out a, 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 um, a stream of hatred of Cindy Gambino and said how he was going to get... You know, she didn't think she could do something like this to him and he was going to get back at her and um, there, was, there was going to be an accident and um, he would be the last person to see the children alive. He made all these sorts of rather lurid threats. And, but Greg King considered Farquharson to be basically a bullshit artist and he um, didn't tell anyone except his wife. He told, him, he said, he told the court that he, he told these threats to his wife. Uh, she could not remember this. It was a very interesting little passage of evidence there um, when, when his king, uh, his, Greg King's wife, Mary King, was on the stand. She was an extraordinary witness. She was completely imperturbable. Uh, and when cross-examined, they said, well, well how come, you know, you, you, he says he told you about these threats. How come you, you don't have any memory of this conversation? She said, I was cross with him. He went to the shop to get the chips. He was late back. The chops were burning. I wanted to get the chops off the stove and get the kids fed, and I was angry with him. I don't remember what he said to me. He told me he'd seen Robbie at the shops, and that's all I remember. I say, surely, Mrs King, if he had threatened to kill his children, I mean, that would be something you'd remember, wouldn't she? She said, I was only thinking about the chops. And this... <laughs> I mean, all, all the... Um, <laughs> the prosecutor, who was the most extraordinarily skillful and brilliant um, barrister. I remember uh, when, when she first said this and people raised their eyebrows, he said, um, how many children have you got, Mrs King? She said four, under the age of you know, seven or whatever they were. And he said, um, 
And I expect, Mrs. King, that uh, around tea time, your kitchen's a pretty noisy place. And she said, tell me about it. <laughs> and you could just feel this surge of liking. I don't know if it was only coming from the women in the court, but she was uh, somebody who no one had any trouble believing, even though it was a strange thing that she was claiming. Um, what else can I tell you at this point? Well, we'll oh, wait, about the yeah. cops? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. So what happened was the kids died. The police, uh, you know, it looked fishy right from the start. The police took Farquharson in and questioned him. And homicide w w took carriage of the case almost immediately. Uh, and they took him in and, and um, questioned him at some length. And they released him without charge at that point. They didn't charge him for about three months after the children died. But during that period... Um, they didn't know about Greg King at this point, the friend who'd had the fish and chip shop conversation. But uh, Greg King was the local bus driver and uh, he was in a terrible state after the children died and he kept bursting into tears and couldn't concentrate and he was in a state. And his boss happened to be a former police officer and he said, what the hell's the matter with you? And he, said, and he, and he told, he told the, his boss about the fish and chip shop conversation and, and the former cop just straight away took him to the police and the homicide guys came to his house and said now listen we want you to wear a wire and go to Farquharson's place and question him about that conversation we need to hear more about that so Greg King went to Farquharson's place um actually oh this is a part of the story I really love for some reason the, the homicide detectives took him to this place called the Motawari boat ramp which is a kind of blighted <laughs> drought stricken <laughs> Um, jetty sticking out into a, what was once a lake but was now a dry area and they wired him up and um, took him you know, he, he went to Farquharson's place and tried to have a conversation about the fish and chip shop conversation and uh, oh, those two, there were two, he went twice and those two tapes were very important evidence in the Crown case because Farquharson came across as a bit of a buffhead, you know, rather inarticulate sort of fellow uh, but on those tapes he suddenly became very fluent and um, poured out a justification for, and uh, accused his friend of all manner of disloyalty and said, you can't tell the police this. You mustn't tell the police this because this will inc incriminate me. And uh, those, I think they had great weight for the jury. Those so he, he didn't deny the conversations had taken place? He didn't deny there had been a conversation, but he denied that he'd made the, the threats. He said, well, you know, maybe I did talk a bit like that. I was mad at her and, you know. But uh, Greg King was a, a, a person who I think suffered most enormously as a witness. He was torn to pieces um, on the stand, but somehow he, he held firm and he was obviously suffering the most appalling guilt and, and grief because, of course, he'd known the three children who were dead. They were friends of his own children. Um, and, and it was a terrible, um, shocking thing to see him on the stand. What did you make of uh, Robert Farquharson? I mean, his sisters were obviously very loyal to him. Oh, yes. There were two very interesting people in the story. He had two older sisters who I got... I mean, when you go to a trial, uh, the, the old courthouse in Melbourne is uh, it's sort of old and magnificent on the outside, but the courtrooms themselves are quite cramped in that old Victorian way. You know, they're clogged with enormous um, sort of balustrades and chunks of timber, and everybody has to edge past each other. So you get to know... Everyone knows who everyone is, 
and uh, and people, you know, women of course meet in the toilets, putting on their lipstick. You, that a lot of information gets exchanged in the women's toilets at courts. I've discovered. And you, <laughs> they're they're important place. Well, they're strangely intimate places because you hear people crying. You know, you see someone who's there because their son's up on some terrible charge and the woman comes in and she's trying to hold herself together and she goes into the toilet. You can hear her sobbing in there. And then she comes out, approaches the mirror, tidies herself, straightens her spine, puts on a bit of lipstick and strides out to face her son's fate again. It, it's really the sort of place, you know, I, I could spend my life in the women's toilets. <laughs> it's so wonderful and, and um, archetypal. But, um, so yeah, anyway, so Robbie Farquharson had, it's hard not to call him Robbie. Everyone, all his friends called him Robbie. He was a little guy and he was sort of the runt of his family. There were four children in the family. There was an older brother who mysteriously had left the state and he'd obviously fallen out with the rest of the family and he... he went to Queensland and never came back, which is what a lot of people do in Victoria. <laughs> um, and then there were these two sisters, sterling women. Uh, and I got chatting with them at the court, just in between times. Uh, but they didn't want to be interviewed by me eventually. But they were quite domineering women, I would have thought. And then, then there was poor Robbie. And he was born uh, many several months prematurely, 40 years ago, and back then that was considerable mm. fate. Uh, and so he was obviously, you know, he had women in his face, this guy. Um, his wife, I think, too, was probably in his face, his former wife. He was a bit of a sad sack, hard-working guy. I think he was genuine, I think he genuinely loved his kids. But um, I, I think he... What happened, the effect that his wife broke off the marriage came as a shock to him. It came out of nowhere and he just could not deal with it. And I think he was filled with raging sorrow and grief and he, he couldn't articulate this. And this is something I, over the years of looking at this case, I naturally... Um, a lot of these cases happen. It's probably, people go, oh, how terrible and, and rare that someone would kill their children. It isn't rare at all. It's something that happens all the time. And especially when, you, when you're thinking particularly about that, you open a paper and bing, 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 there it is. In this country, in that, someone threw their kids off a bridge. Somebody um, plunged into a river. It's amazing how often people throw children into water, which I think is um, psychologically very interesting but we don't need to go there. Um, but the two sisters uh, were staunch behind their brother and I, I don't know what they had to go through to maintain that, mm. that position. Well, why do, why do you think he did it? Well, naturally, I have never spoken to him, I should say. I, haven't, I didn't interview anybody for this book. It's not a book of interviews. It's, it's centred around the court hearings. Um, what Mary hasn't said was that there were, after the first, uh, will I tell you about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after the first trial, where he was found guilty and got a, what is in modern times a tremendous sentence, which was he got life with no parole. He was never going to be able to apply for parole. He um, appealed against that conviction and that sentence and uh, was granted, the judge had made a couple of errors in, in his uh, charge to the jury, which is always the most um, vulnerable oh. point of any um, judgment and uh and he the court of appeal gave him a second trial 
So then a couple of years passed and the whole thing went through again and he was once again found guilty, but he had a slightly more merciful judge the second time who gave him 33 with, uh, well, life with 33 on the bottom, you know, which meant that after 33 years he would be able to apply for parole. How old uh, was he when he did this? Uh, 37, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, I'm sorry I got off the track. You asked me what I, why I thought he did it. Oh, yeah, why? Yeah, why? And also, I think also whether it was impulsive because he wasn't actually expecting to have the children that night, was no. he? No, no. Uh, well, there was a theme that was kind of hushed up in the trial, which was that of a failed suicide. And that's what I kept coming back to as I thought and thought about it and sat there and uh, through the two long trials and the, and the appeals and the rest of the time I was just thinking about it, waiting for the whole thing to be over so I could write it. So I had this stuff in mind for nearly eight years. And uh, the, the whole suicide thing was, he, he was seeing a counsellor uh, and he was seeing a psychologist at certain points I think what usually happens is a guy goes to a GP, right, in, in a, say, a, an ordinary working guy in a country, small country town, go, goes to a GP and says, I'm not sleeping well at night. My, my wife has um, gone off with this other bloke and um, everything's collapsed. And, uh, you know, I'm fine. Um, I'm fine about it. I don't care if, you know, all I care about is the kids and, you know, this sort of clumsily, clumsily constructed defence against his own feelings, which I find quite unbearable to contemplate, actually. And, but um, there was some... His former wife was... Oh, so the first thing the GP does is to put him on um, a Vanza or uh, one of those sort of... What is it, antidepressant or something, is it? An antidepressant, yeah. He said, oh, yeah, take these. So he comes back in a couple of weeks and says, I still can't sleep and I'm still feeling bad. So the doctor goes, we'll, we'll take, we'll swap it. Let's take these ones instead. And uh, then, then, you know, there's some talk about his wife was, his former wife was worried that he was, might um, take too many of the sleeping pills. So then they sent him to a, a psychologist and the psychologist's duty is to say, have you, have you thought of, have you had any thoughts of suicide? And he said, yes, I have. So this, the psychologist's duty is then to make a report to the GP saying, um, I have, uh, you know, I asked Mr Farquharson if he'd had any suicidal thoughts and he said he had, and I advised him in the following ways. But Farquharson would not go back to that psychologist. He wouldn't go there again. And the evidence... Um, he never spoke to his GP about these suicidal thoughts the only source for that information that the, that the, that the GP had was from the, the psychologist's report. And, and I said, well, how come they didn't call the psychologist? And this, you know, this is my naivety about the way courts ran. I said, actually, after the first trial was over, you know, I said to the prosecutor, how come he didn't call that psychologist? And he said, oh, he wouldn't even take our calls. He said he wouldn't, um, he wouldn't take the, the homicide calls and he wouldn't return our calls. And I said, but couldn't you subpoena him? I said, naively throwing around a term. And um, he said, what? Subpoena him? But what might he have said? And that's when I first grasped how you don't want to put someone on the stand unless you know what they're going to say. These things are quite staggering to me when I first f find out about them. 
But so, anyway, it was, it was hearsay. It was classed as hearsay. So it couldn't be, um, the GP couldn't be um, questioned about the suicide things. But it, it, it stuck in my mind. And see, I come from that part of the country. I was born and raised in Geelong. And it's down there on this, Winchelsea is about 30 k's from Geelong. It's on this endless volcanic plain. And often it's very beautiful. It's, um, there are great massive walls of pines that wind breaks and, 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 and flat bottom clouds that just sail across this glorious flat landscape. But in the winter, my God, it's dismal. And there are, there are let me just, can, can I just read this bit right yeah, sure. at the end? Even Farquharson's um, council who'd also been raised in that part of the country after it was all over, emailed me and said, I really know what you mean about Sunday afternoons in Geelong. <laughs> and I said, it's this. Um, I come back and back to the old Commodore. This actually is answering your question. I come back and back to the old Commodore in the Kmart car park. When Farquharson pulls in, he finds that the youngest child, Bailey, who was only two, had nodded off in his baby seat. Farquharson has forgotten to bring the stroller so to pass the time until the toddler wakes, he turns on the radio. The sad father sits with his boys in their shit car, listening to the football. This clapped-out bubble of steel and glass is the only home he has to offer them. I was born and brought up in Geelong. I remember winter Sunday afternoons in that part of the country, their heavy melancholy. The Barwon River flows between its neat banks. Cars glide in silence through the, through the colourless streets. Along the bottoms of fences, dank weeds sprout. The air is still and chilly. The steely cloud cover will never break. Time stalls. There is no future. One's own desolation is manifest in the worn-down volcanic landscape. The life force burns low in its secret cage. By nightfall, the shit car would become a weapon and then a coffin. Now, I... My thought is that that's the mood he was in. He, he was in the Kmart car park in Geelong on his way back to Winchelsea. He'd had the kids out for a day. He had nowhere to take them. His father's house was so cold and miserable that his former wife called it the morgue. Uh, he, didn't want the, he didn't want to take the kids there. He had nowhere to take them. And he was going to have to give them back at the end of the day. And I, this is why people... people a lot of people get angry with me, Victorians who, you know, had followed this case, when I expressed sympathy for him. I mean, as you said the other day when we were talking, um, I felt sympathy for him up to the minute where he planted his foot on the accelerator, and that's where my sympathy stops. But, but he was a poor, broken-hearted bastard with nowhere to go. No one loved him. And he was with his kids in this car. And I, I just think he thought he'd just st stop the pain that he was in. And he's in the water and it's cold and the reptile brain kicks in. He said, let me out of here. He's not thinking, I, I must save my children. He's thinking, let me get the fuck out of this sinking car. And, and the rest of everything he said was trying to put a finer gloss on that. And surprising to me, the number of people I spoke to in the, um, you know, in the years that I was thinking about this case, who said, but you, you're in the water, your kids are in the car, you fight to get them out, don't you? 
That's what you do. You, you, you either, if you can't get them out, you put your arms around them and you go to, and you say, kids, we're going down together. I mean, people had this fantasy that that's what they would do. But there were other, you know, some fathers would often speak like that passionately saying, oh, I could never do that. But then one or two of these men would say to me, at least that's what I think I'd do or what I hope I'd do. And the, the, the horrible thing of it is if a person acts on a wild fantasy and suddenly everything becomes real, then nobody knows what they're, they're likely to do. So that's what I think. And also at the end of it, um, right near the end of the story, after he, he, he wanted to go to the high, they wanted to take him to the high court, to, um, which in Australia is you know, the highest court of appeal in the land. It's in Canberra. And <coughs> um, they thought they could, um, um, they wanted to take it to the, to the high court. But the high court sent three judges down to Melbourne to sort of prelim- for a preliminary hearing and, and they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be in it, even though his, um, his counsel actually, you know, sort of threw, threw out his inst- instructions that the client had given him and said, look, this is not my instruction from my client, but this real, let's look at this, what it really was. It was a suicidal driving into the dam. And, and I looked at Farquharson at that moment and his face twisted with rage. He just did not want people... Okay, he yeah. would rather think people, people thought he was a murderer than that he would be, want to kill himself. These things are mi- mysteries, um, I think, in the long term. Can you tell us a little bit about Louise, who you included in the book, who was quite a refreshing change from... Me. What was quite... <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> I felt no, she was. From a sort of... Some of the, there were passages were just sort of unmitigated awfulness, yes. you know, in the evidence. And then Louise well, would come yeah. up with something. Well, there was this, there's a young woman called Louise in the story, in my book. And uh, several people have come up to me, especially <coughs> literary academics. Some would come up to me and say, is Louise a real person or is she a narrative device? <laughs> and, and I actually burst out laughing because... Firstly, there's nothing in this book that isn't real. And secondly, Louise, uh, when I was going to the first trial, I thought, I, I had this, I've got this, um, th- this old friend, uh, also named Helen, whose daughter, Louise, is probably the cleverest person I've ever met in my life. I've known her since she was a little girl. And she's got one of those razor-sharp brains that are very terrifying in a child. And, and she was around this time about 16, and she just raced through high school at warp speed and um, was waiting to be old enough to go to university. So she's just hanging around the house reading comics. I mean, graphic novels, sorry. <laughs> and uh, so I just thought, hey, maybe I could ask her to come to this. Maybe she'd be interested in going to a murder trial. I don't know why I thought she would be. It's not as if we'd ever talked about such things. So I said to her mother, hey, can I ask Louise to come to the murder trial with me? And she go, yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> so uh, I said to Louise... <laughs> who was this kind of surly-looking teenager, you know, who just wore, you know, ragged clothes and dirty old um, docks on her feet and a bit of a hoodie. And I said, do you want to come to a murder trial? And she said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. So um, we rock up. And she's a kind of, you know, dykey-looking little chick with blonde hair, cut a bit, quite a lovely face, but sort of truculent. And uh, the interesting thing was, 
I, I didn't think she'd last the distance because, see, I, I actually love courts and I, I love... Uh, I love even the boring bits of court are fascinating to me. But I've noticed that when school groups, are, you know, if I'm at a trial, just sitting quietly in the journalist's section where I sit, uh, you see all these groups of school kids brought in to see justice in action. And you think, oh, you know, they sort of come in all bright-eyed and excited. And then the lawyers start droning on and droning on and they can't really hear properly and, and you can see the light go out in these kids' eyes and they start sort of fidgeting and looking at, you know, updating their Facebook page and, and, uh, and then they just can't get out fast enough. But I've noticed that, you know, when I first went to court to, 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 to a trial, there seems to me to be a boredom barrier that's about 20 minutes in. And if you can sustain, you know, if you can just be patient and get through that first 20 minutes in there, opens out this phantasmagorical world of, of interest and, and human behaviour. And, oh, I just love it. I could spend all my life sitting in a court. And, and I think Louise turned out to be that sort of person. And now she's in her early 20s and she's doing law. So, um, but, you know, the, 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 her intelligence and her extreme interest in the case was immediately clear to all the, um, all the lawyers. You know, I, I knew a couple of lawyers around the place and, uh, you know, you'd not, I'd, they'd say, oh, hi, Helen, what are you doing here? And I'd say, and I'd say, oh, this is my sidekick, Louise. And, and normally they'd, you know, look at a teenage girl and go, ho, hum. I mean, she was cute, but not that cute. And, and, but they would look at her and there was something about her presence. She had this very measuring way of looking people in the eye and it instantly people would treat her with respect and include her in the conversation, although she was only a teenager. And I, I was very struck by that. So Louise in the book is a, a sort of a refreshing figure, I think. So in that sense, maybe she is a narrative device, but she was really funny. I mean, we spend a lot of time just snorting with laughter at certain things. But um, she's a witty person, and she was also much less sentimental than I was. She had much more of a lawyer's mind where I was kind of wallowing in the, the sort of glorious emotion of everything, um, she, she would quickly size things up. She also was really good at maths, which meant that she could uh, contemplate the, the crown evidence, which was about the angle on which the car left the road. And uh, she could, she'd say, no, 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 that's wrong. He said it was X plus B, but really it was, you know, and she'd kind of map out the, the maths of it, which I found quite useful. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you think, um, I mean, do you have faith in the process? You obviously spend a bit of time in the courts. Do you? Well, I've, I've never sat through a trial where I saw an injustice being done. I feel like, although some people would disagree, but I mean, I know the, the defence team, I think, are all sort of, um, some of them look like broken men now. You know, Seriously? I'm, oh, yeah. I, I, I think... Um, when I look at Farquharson's, uh, it was a long haul, you know, it was nearly eight years of horror and just constant knockbacks. But I, I think Farquharson's counsel at, at quite an early stage lost uh, the, the, the required detachment. I, I think he got far too invested in the story. I think he should not have done the second trial. I think someone else should have stepped in. But I think he developed a relationship with the family that perhaps played to his um, vanity it may be that uh, um, I think perhaps if you're appearing for, the, for an accused person, you can take on an almost priest-like role uh, where you overestimate. To the family, you mean? To the family, to the family. Yeah. Um, 
where the, and I used to watch Farquharson's family and they'd crowd, his counsel, Peter Morrissey, he was a lovely guy. I really enormously liked him and, and respected him. But he, he sort of battled on, even though he was on the ropes. But I don't know if he even knew he was on the ropes. The other thing is, I, I was in the privileged position of, because I was getting, um, the transcript would be emailed to me every night, which was an incredible privilege. You, normally you have to pay seven bucks a page to get transcript. But I mean, I, I just made an application to the judge. I said, I'm writing a book about this. And he put me on the list, the list, which I didn't know existed. And I'd get home from court every day and there would be the, the entire day's transcript sitting waiting for me. It was so fantastic, I can't tell you. But, um, but because of that, it meant that I could spend a lot of time I didn't have to write everything down. You know, I obviously wrote some things down, but what I was writing down was not so much what people were saying as what they, were, what they looked like when they were saying it. Or um, I, I was able to just keep... And also, I was able to spend a lot of time looking at the jury. And I, I felt that it was my prerogative to I interpret the jury's demeanour my prerogative as a, as, an, as a fully engaged observer, I mean. And I found that absolutely fascinating to see how, how early in the piece the, uh, um, Peter Morrissey, Farquharson's counsel, lost the jury, I felt, about the... Um, what, lost the them technical... once and for all? Just... No, no, no. Uh, there, was a, there was this problem called the yellow paint marks. See, on the night the car went into the dam, it happened at night, and... Uh, this, this outfit, who I just totally adore, of, of called Major Collision. <laughs> um, and all the old guys of Major Collision are, um, you know, old tow truck drivers. And then the, the, um, the younger ones are engineers from Monash University. So it's a very... Oh, I love them. I, I, they're the guys who go out in the middle of the night when there's this smash and there's bodies everywhere and, and they've got to do the measurements and figure out how the, the crash occurred. And... Um, Oh, damn, I got off the track. What was I going to say about... Uh, no, Morrissey and the um, jury. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that's right. So, so there's this cop called Sergeant Exton, who's like my favourite cop. He's one of those cop to drop right there. He had a big moustache. And he is sort of a comic character. And he was... Um, so he's down at the dam on the night and, and they're crawling along the what I now call is the aggregate, otherwise that's what Major Collision called gravel. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they're sort of crawling along with a big torch trying to find the, the, the tie marks where the car had left the bitumen. And, you know, it had, so as I said before, the dam was on the right-hand side of the road, so he had to go right across like that. It wasn't just a drift to the left. He had to sort of pull the wheel and go across the, the oncoming lane. So they're crawling along with his big torch trying to find a, a mark, where a, a tie mark in the aggregate. And they find one. So Sergeant Exon goes back to the car and he gets this can of yellow paint. And he goes, he actually said this. He, and they said, well, how did you mark the paint mark? And he said, I got the can and I went like this. And everybody laughed. I mean, he, he really knew how to amuse and entertain the court. <laughs> this guy used to be a um, tow truck driver. That, that's, uh, you know, I loved him. But anyway, so anyway, these, these yellow paint marks caused unbelievable amounts of trouble because they weren't exactly... What there was was there was this single tie mark through the aggregate and then after that there was a, an arc 
of um, a t- tire tracks that went in a steady arc all the way to the dam edge and, and broke off a bit of tree and into the water. And that was the, uh, the, the business of the paint marks. It, they did not line up precisely with the tracks through the grass. And so that, you know, slight difference of the paint, you know, the yellow paint marks, they weren't right. So this was pretty much all, all the defence had, had to go on. And this trial went for two and a half months. And the, the jury were going, enough already with the yellow paint marks. Every time anyone mentioned the yellow paint marks, you could see the, the jury just going, oh, shit, please. And, you know, they, were, they had their heads in their hands. But, so I'm sitting there looking at this, writing it all down. But um, Peter Morris, he was working away. You know, he was working and he didn't seem to have anyone in his team that was looking at the jury and saying, hey, Peter, enough, enough. with the paint marks. They've had enough. It's counterproductive. Yeah. Is it true that in America they have people on a, uh, on a team that, whose job is to look at the jury? Definitely. They should, well, see, I'd be really good at that. Yeah. <laughs> There's work for you here. Yeah. <laughs> I'd do it for nothing. I'd volunteer. We, we better go to question shortly, but I did want to ask you, you know, when you got home at the end of the day, did you, did you write up your notes or did you think, oh, I've had enough of that? No, uh, I wrote up my notes. And I, when I'm working on a non-fiction book, I don't know if there's anyone in this audience who ever wants to do one, but this is a thing that I found terribly useful, is that I, I keep a kind of a journal of my engagement with the material, whatever it is, especially if it's a trial. And um, I ke- it's like a diary, and I keep it faithfully every day. And I write in it everything that comes to my mind about the trial. When I get home, I would sit down straight away, and I'd put the date, and I'd put the time, and I'd say, today, uh, this wouldn't be, um, this would be more like my thoughts about it, rather than facts, because that was all there in the... Transcript. Yeah, exactly. So I'd write such and such um, a jury, uh, such and such a witness struck me this way. This is what he was wearing. Uh, I noticed that he, I, I saw the sweat break out on his brow. I could see he was um, terrified or, you know, that sort of thing, descriptive matter. And, um, and I'd say, today I really did not know if a jury could find this man guilty. And so, in a sense, that's what one of the things that, you know, I think makes the book interesting is that my feeling about it moves all the time. It's constantly, you know, there's some days I think, how can they find someone guilty on the basis of that? They must be going to acquit him. And then the next day, Greg King would be on the stand and I'd think, oh, uh, wait a minute, I have to rethink this. So all that kind of material shifting back and forth, that's all in that journal. And when, uh, so I faithfully do it every day. And it's not just, well, it's partly a discipline. I'm in a working discipline, but it's also a way of just getting it out of my head for half an hour so I can hang out with my grandchildren for the evening without feeling I'm going to contaminate them with what I know. You know, um, the thing is, I don't know how, how lawyers and judges do that. Just... Um, somehow cl- close it off for a while so you can get back to a world where things are there's kindness and so would you you know would you once you've done that you you know read read a book turn the tv on whatever just forget about the thing for the whole night or oh no I used to have dreams about it and yeah that's why it's so exhausting yeah. because um i 
I'd wake up at two o'clock in the morning and just remembering things. And because the, the trial is an extremely sort of vivid experience, and people think that courts are places of reason, and obviously there's an enormous role for reason in what goes on, but the, the emotion, the emotional, it's a bath of emotion in there, and judges are full of it too. You know, they probably think that it's invisible, but it's not. Um, it can be heard in people's voices and the, the enormous distress that, that there, there is in court and th the sudden bursts of laughter. Everybody longs to laugh just to re re relieve Reset, the, basically. Yeah, just to relieve the, the um, pain that everybody's in. And, but th there's also this sort of hopefulness and courtesy. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see a, a well-run trial where the judge is across it and, um, and people are sincere. I, 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 well, you asked me earlier if I, if I thought that our system was a, a good one and I, I've, I don't know how it could be changed. And I, I've never seen, I, I mean, I've sat in on trials in countries that had inquisitorial systems, but I didn't understand the language. <laughs> so it wasn't very enlightening. But, but I, I do find, I know that there are trials that are corrupt. I know there are corrupt police. I know there are lawyers who will do anything to get their client off and lie. But, but I, I, I'm just, I find it very moving, a moving spectacle to see a trial develop and blossom and flourish and emerge with this fruit at the end, which is a, a verdict. It's an astonishing and beautiful and very privileged process that, I, I love and, and admire. I think all that remains for us is to thank you and uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.